0: word and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 23. Today as we continue our studies coming close to the end we are picking up in verse 44 the death of Jesus and reading to the end of the chapter the burial of Christ. And we are uh, coming to the end as I mentioned in fact if you're reading along in the ESV and you have uh, an ESV in front of you chances are you can see the rest of the Gospel of Luke laid out in front of you you can see uh, exactly the ground that we still have to cover. Uh, I want to give you a heads up that over the next uh, two weeks, Lord willing, we're going to be preaching a bit of a MasterCard sermon, a Venn diagram, uh, because the passage from verses 50 to 56 fits both with what we'll hear today and also with what we'll hear next time. It's a bit of a transition, and so I'll try to be a model of restraint and not say everything that I would like to say. Uh, about Joseph of Arimathea, and we'll come back and hear some more about the burial of Christ next week as we prepare to hear about and celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But we are today in Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44, reading to the end of the chapter, verse 56, and that is on page 884 of the Pew Bibles. Before we read this word together, let's go to the Lord again in prayer, seeking his blessing upon our study together. Let's pray. O Lord, our gracious God, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that as we come, you would not only lay it open before us, but lay our hearts open before you, that by your word and by your spirit, you would cut to the quick of joint and marrow, marrow soul and body, that you would show us all that we need of you and all that we lack in ourselves and remind us that all that we desire is in Christ. O Lord, help us to desire who Christ is for us. Help us to turn away from the vain desires of the world and the flesh. Help us to turn to you and be filled in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 23, beginning to read in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. Well, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices, anointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. Thus far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together. Uh, I suppose uh, that the vast majority of Most of the news that most of us encounter is really just something that's meant to be consumed. And you know this is true when you uh, open your newspaper, if you still get a newspaper, or you turn on the television, if you still watch regular television, or you open your newsfeed or you open your inbox, and suddenly reports of, uh, of business and sports and Olympic events just sort of pass by you like a gentle breeze. It's not even enough to tousle your hair or make much of an indent in your life. Most of it's just meant to be consumed. That's why probably most of the news cycles have become so frenetic uh, in recent years. Something happens and all of the reporters are trying to get the latest scoop on the latest thing and then 15 minutes later all of civilization has forgotten that it happened and they've moved on. So unless you work for the Associated Press, which Bill no longer does, unless you work for the Associated Press, most of this stuff you can... Engage in and then ignore without much real investment. Most of it's just meant to be consumed, but there are some news stories that demand your response. That's the difference between news stories and just story stories. Uh, Fiction might spark your interest. Fact sometimes requires your action. You get the news that you're being audited. Uh, You get the news that you've become a grandmother. You get the news that the tumor is malignant. You hear that your candidate was elected, that your job was outsourced, that your application has been accepted. Sometimes news makes a personal difference, and sometimes it demands a personal response. The gospel of Jesus Christ is like that. The good news, we call it. The gospel, the evangelion, the, the declaration that Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ is coming again. And Paul said it's the good news which you received and in which you stand and by which you're being saved if you hold fast to it. It's news that demands something of you. It's news that is a confrontation with the status quo, a declaration that things from now on must be different. It's good news that demands your faith and demands your devotion. Well, today as we study these verses, we're going to take them just slightly out of order, so that we can focus first on the news that Luke is reporting, this event of the death of Jesus. And then we're going to look in response to how creation witnessed to the significance of Jesus' sacrifice and how mankind should respond to the sacrifice Savior. Those are our three points today. Christ's death, creation's witness, and man's response. So we begin with Christ's death. Verse 46 shows us All that Luke has to say, that Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. I feel like I've been repeating myself over the last few weeks, but here, especially in uh, these very familiar passages, we have another opportunity uh, to find, to notice what Luke has chosen to leave out of his report. Luke does this a lot, actually. We we come to these passages that we know, the things that we expect that we should find there. The cry of dereliction, Psalm 22, on Jesus' lips, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know that it was said, we know it should be there, and Luke doesn't put it in. It's not that he doesn't know about it. It's not that he's unaware. Remember, back in his gospel prologue, he said that many have undertaken to, to make an account of the things that have happened among us, Oh, so, uh, excellent Theophilus. He's aware of, of the other reports. He's aware of what Jesus said, and yet he chooses to leave some of what we would say or maybe the most important aspects of Jesus' death to the side in order to focus on what he wants us to see. Luke wants to focus our attention on the trust that Jesus has in God's salvation. Even as he suffers the torment of God's wrath in the place of sinners, he wants us to realize that Jesus died in the very same way that he lived, in conscious, faithful obedience to his Father. That's what Luke wants us to see about Christ's death. He wants us to see his conscious faithful obedience. From Jesus' first cry in Mary's arms to his final breath at Calvary, Jesus' delight was to do the will of his Father. It was his food and his drink. It was his all-consuming devotion. Nothing was more important to Jesus than completing the work of salvation the Father had sent him to perform. And nothing was more sure in the heart of the Savior than that his Father would always protect him that the Father would always provide for him, would always give him what was best and necessary and good. That's why the temptation of Satan in the wilderness was such a trial. It was a temptation that, that tempted Jesus to distrust his relationship with his Father. If you're the Son of God, Satan had said, if you're the Son of God, well, prove it. Command these stones to become bread. Bow down and worship. Throw yourself down from the top of the temple. In other words, why don't you do a little something to prove that the Father really cares for you? Prove that he can be trusted. Prove that he'll deliver you. Prove that what he says is really true. The temptation in the wilderness was, Jesus, why don't you have a little healthy skepticism? Why don't you walk by sight rather than by faith? And in the wilderness, Jesus refused to distrust his Father. And here on the cross, at the end of his ministry, he is trusting him still. It was the theme of his entire ministry. It was the fuel of his sweat-soaked prayer in Gethsemane. It was the conviction that enabled him to lay down his life as an act of intentional obedience. So instead of Psalm 22, on the lips of the Savior, Luke records Psalm 31, verse 5, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I, Howard Marshall, is a New Testament scholar. He suggested it was uh, Psalm 31, verse 5, was a typical prayer of Jews before they went off to bedtime. It was something like a less childish version of if I die before I wake. I pray the Lord my soul to take. It was a, a prayer of commitment, a prayer of entrusting, a prayer of faithfulness, knowing that the Lord would protect you as you lay down to rest and entrust yourself to him. Oh, here at Calvary, this, this prayer spoke of a deeper rest than sleep, though. It spoke of a rest of settled faith. It was the declaration on the Savior's lips that even here, even now, the Father was giving the Son exactly what was best. Not what was comfortable, not what was easy, but what was best. The Father could be trusted, and the Son chose to obey. Have you ever considered that none of the Gospel writers described the death of Jesus by writing simply, and then Jesus died? In their own way, they each describe it in a way that shows us that Jesus is in perfect control of the situation, that he does it actively, that Jesus is the actor when he, Luke says, breathes his last. That no one takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. So having declared his trust in the Father, Jesus breathed his last, and it was the final act of obedience in a lifetime of perfect faith. That's the Savior's death. But while he slumped, lifeless on the cross, creation itself was bearing witness. But this was no normal obedience. This was no ordinary death. And so Luke reports uh, that in the hours surrounding Jesus' death, there were signs in the heavens and there were signs in the temple. The sun refused to give its light. The sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Both of them signs declaring something significant about what Jesus' death means for us. Consider the darkness. Now, if we were reading any other first century writer outside of the scriptures, if Luke was simply recording to us some secular source, we might be able to take this darkness and debate back and forth, what do you think this darkness means? Oh, well, I think it, it might be an omen trying to say this, or it might be a portent trying to reveal that. The Romans were all about omens and portents. Uh, signs they believe that the gods with a small g were trying to get their attention, trying to communicate something to them. So they look for the migratory patterns of birds, or they look for animals born with defects, or they look for signs in the heavens, an eclipse, or, or something of that nature to see that the gods were trying to get their attention. But at the end of the day, it was all about as helpful as a fortune cookie. Because you had no real idea what the the gods might be trying to say. So you could debate it. You could figure it out. Not so here in the scriptures. Luke isn't writing a secular myth. He is writing scriptural history. And that means that the darkness in Luke 23 is defined. Maybe not by Luke, but by knowing the way that darkness shows up in scripture, we have a pretty good idea of what this darkness is meant to communicate. Sometimes in Scripture, darkness communicates spiritual ignorance. It's a human darkness. and So Paul writes in Romans uh, chapter 1 that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a darkness of ignorance. A human refusal to accept the things of God. Other times in Scripture, uh, darkness communicates to us a satanic evil. Colossians chapter 1, the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of the beloved Son. And you see that juxtaposition there. You're in the kingdom of darkness. You're in the kingdom of the Son. It's a satanic evil. So there are some options in the Bible. It could be a a human darkness. It could be a devilish darkness. And then again, sometimes there's darkness that belongs to God himself. And when that darkness shows up, it is a darkness of divine judgment every time. And that's the darkness that was poured out on Calvary. It's darkness that shows up in the heavens. It's the darkness of judgment against Egypt in the plagues, a thick kind of darkness that could be felt It's the darkness of Isaiah chapter 13, beginning in verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation, to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And as Jesus hung there gasping and bleeding on the cross, a supernatural, thick, heavenly darkness descended across the land. Not because there was evil in Jesus, not because some alternate kingdom was uh, was winning a triumph, but because at the cross, Jesus bore the guilt that belongs to sinners. The darkness descended and God's judgment came with it. The Father made the sinless Son a desolation on our behalf. He destroyed our sin in the person of our substitute. And so for three long hours, Christ endured the outer darkness of divine judgment. And then there was the tearing of the temple. At the moment of his death, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. We can probably only imagine the abject horror of the priests who were serving in the temple when it happened. This is the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It was a linen veil, first woven and then embroidered with purple scarlet and gold yarns. It was as thick as a man's hand, as wide. It was 90 feet tall, and Mark adds the the detail that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And when it was, suddenly the ark of God's covenant was visible. Suddenly they could see the golden mercy seat splattered with a few hundred years of annual sacrifice blood. This is the curtain that marked the entrance into the presence of God among his people. That fearful place where only one high priest went on only one day of the year. And even he had to wear bells on his robe. Even he had to wear a rope around his ankle in case he came into the presence of God and God was displeased and struck him dead so they could drag his lifeless body out underneath the curtain. Suddenly the way into God's presence was opened. It must have been a terrifying moment. A horrible, fearful, terrifying moment. But for Christ's people, this is the promise of welcome through our Savior. It's the declaration in sign form that the way to God is open through the death of Jesus. Here's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. So through the death of Jesus, the way into God's presence was opened. Not just into a temple here on earth, because it might also have been a sign that the temple was about to be judged, that all of it was unraveling before the very eyes of the Jewish priest, but not uh, merely just a temple on earth, but through the forgiveness of sins, through faith in Christ's name, it's a sign that we can be reconciled to the Father, we can be welcomed into his heavenly dwelling. It's a glorious invitation, a hopeful, heartening, glorious invitation. And at the death of Jesus, creation itself was bearing witness to the sacrifice that he made. The darkness of judgment declared our sins forgiven. The tearing of access declared God's presence open. And now through the sacrifice of Jesus, sinners can be received by the Father. It's good news. It's good news that demands your engagement, your investment. And so with the remainder of the text, we turn to consider humanity's response. Have you considered that all three synoptic Gospels record the first reaction to Jesus' death as coming from a complete outsider? The centurion was there. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't a disciple. In all likelihood, he'd never heard of Jesus before this day. He didn't know his teachings. He didn't know his miracles. He didn't know anything about his reputation. All we saw was how he died. He was close enough that even in the darkness, he could watch him there on the cross. He could hear his prayers. He could hear his his words of comfort to the thief. He He could listen to him crying out. He could see him breathe his last like a man dying on command. Luke says, when he saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Actually, the word innocent isn't strong enough. The word actually is righteous. It's a theological term. Luke is tipping us off to the fact that this man encountered Jesus' death as a sort of religious experience. That he offered praise to God when he evaluated Christ. Maybe he wouldn't have put it that way. Maybe he wouldn't even understood what was happening. But this man encountered Jesus for the first time. And it squeezed spontaneous praise from his lips. We have no indication in the scriptures elsewhere that this man actually became a believer. Maybe he did. Maybe we'll see him in paradise in glory with the Lord. Maybe he'll be there, but maybe he won't. We don't know much beyond uh, this categorical statement that he made, that he put Jesus into the category of a righteous man. The way that Jesus died impressed him. He shows up in the pages of the Gospels for a nanosecond and then he disappears and that's just about all we know. But what we do know is that there are other people who seem to encounter Jesus the same way that he did. We know people who have a knee-jerk attraction to Jesus. There's something about him that, that's, that makes them appreciate him. He fits their conception of what goodness looks like. Some people admire Jesus because they think he's noble. Because he seems accepting. Because he seems wise. Some people like him because they find his teaching comforting. Jesus is attractive to them. He lived well. He led well. He spoke well. He died well. And they may even be warmed up to him because they had some kind of religious experience once upon a time. A certain feeling of lightness when they heard about him, when somebody spoke about Jesus and they resolved, I'm going to go to church sometime. I'm going to pick up a Bible. I'm going to labor to have my doubts resolved. I'm going to learn more about this righteous man. And then, like the centurion, they disappear. And the experience wanes, the crisis is averted. The temporary interest fades into dry, daily monotony. Sometimes that religious experience is a moment. Sometimes that religious experience is an adolescence. But we know people like that. But eventually they they wane, they, they disappear. It's how some people respond to Jesus. Some acknowledge his righteousness, but they never go any further. Other people encounter Jesus and they feel the grief of their sin for the first time. The crowds were like that. In all probability, they didn't go out to be affected by what they saw. There was an execution, and in the first century, an execution always draws a crowd. They went out, it says, to see a spectacle. That is just to see something to be seen. This will be interesting, maybe. Life and death before their very eyes. There's more than they bargained for. Have you ever watched a movie that you knew you probably shouldn't have watched before you watched it? You knew that it would be a little bit out of your comfort zone, a little too violent, a little too depressing, a little too unresolved at the end, but everybody kept telling you, it's the best movie. You've got to see the movie. It's so good. You're going to love the movie. You've got to see it. I, I really don't want to, but okay. And so you see it. And then when you do, it goes exactly the way that you thought it was going to go. It goes worse than you thought it would go. And by the end of the movie, your stomach is turned. Your senses are assaulted. You feel offended. You sit there as the credits are rolling, and you're sitting in silence, wishing that you had never watched the things that you knew you didn't want to watch in the first place, but now you can't undo it. And that's maybe as close as we can get to what the crowds were feeling that Friday. They went out to see a spectacle. what did they expect from the execution of an innocent man? It was everything they feared, and it was worse. There were probably even ones who went out just to have their distaste of Jesus legitimized by watching him breathe his last. And when they saw it, they were undone. They saw the way he trusted the Lord. They saw the way he spoke peace to everyone around them. They saw his death, and it was all just a confirmation that he was blameless. It was all just a confirmation of their own injustice. All they saw when they went out to see the spectacle was proof that they had had a hand in the murder of an innocent man. So Luke says they returned home beating their breasts. It's the same posture as the praying tax collector in Jesus' parable. It's weeping and it's wailing. It's an inability to lift their eyes to heaven. It's wailing wailing over the grief of their sins. Now we know the book of the Acts of the Apostles, and we can hope because of what we've seen there that this moment, this grief over their sin was the beginning of real conviction that would open the hearts to the people to the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. We can hope that this conviction of sin, this grief was the beginning for many people with the life of Jesus. But we also know that for others it was almost certainly the end we know that because we know there are people who encounter Jesus and they never come closer than feeling sorry about their sin for a moment like the disappearing centurion and their religious experiences sometimes have an incredibly temporary effect on lifelong, lifelong sinners so some people hear the call of the gospel. Some people encounter the truth of his teaching, and again, they have this sense, this moment where they're stirred. They resolve to investigate their sins. They make a mental checklist of the things they need to do to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then, well, things get busy. I'll have to come back to this guilt when it's more convenient for me to deal with it. I'll have to come back to it later when my head's a little clearer, when I can process a little more clearly, when I can, when I can go through it step by step, the, the way that it ought to be treated, with, with a little bit of sensibility. I, I don't want to rush into anything. I'll come back to it. and In the meantime, I'll put my mind on something else. Just for a while, I'll come back. I, I promise. Maybe. And some people respond to the good news of salvation like that. Some are willing to acknowledge Christ's righteousness. Some feel a temporary twinge of guilt for their sins. Others, like Joseph, and, and like these women from, the Gal- from Galilee, others are willing to be numbered with the Savior. That's the response that the good news demands of us, by the way. A willingness to be numbered with him, not Not for a moment, not because there's this bare external attraction, but because we've seen him as the one whom our souls desire. A willingness to be his, to be known as his, to be singled out as his. At the very end of this crucifixion scene, Luke reintroduces this group that has been with Jesus, it seems, from the very beginning. They've been in the background since Luke chapter 8. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and Mary, the mother of James. They've been there the whole time, even though we haven't heard from them. They were these faithful followers, and they walked with Jesus, and they ministered to his needs as he ministered to the people. And now they're still there, standing from a distance, but watching it all. Standing because they want to be with him, standing because they wanted to give what they could, even though by all earthly accounts, they now consider Jesus' ministry to them over. And that's what we need to understand about these women, what we need to understand about Joseph. One thing we need to keep in mind is that none of them yet believed in the resurrection. The spectacle of the crucifixion was over and nobody remembered, nobody believed the words that Jesus spoke about being raised from the dead to give life to his disciples. Verse 51, we're told that Joseph was a good man and a righteous man and a man who was looking for the kingdom of God. But fast forward to the day of resurrection and two other disciples on the road to Emmaus told us what happened to all that looking when Jesus was crucified. Chapter 24, verse 21, they said, But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The crucifixion was over, and for every one of his disciples, it was all in the past tense. They believed it was over. And even though they believed it was over, they still didn't return home, beating their breasts and hanging their heads. They didn't go back to life as normal. They stayed. They remained, they stayed at least long enough to render one more kindness to the teacher that had led them this way. And for Joseph, his his devotion to Jesus probably meant something like career suicide. As you know that in all the rest of the Roman Empire, the bodies of the crucified were left on their crosses until the birds of the heavens had had their fill. Only in Israel, only because of Jewish scruples about dead bodies and how they ought to be treated, only in Israel were they allowed to be taken down and normally thrown into a shallow pit with a little bit of dirt tossed on top. This is not the way you treat criminals, and yet Joseph went straight to Pilate and asked for permission to bury Jesus in a very expensive tomb. A tomb cut by hand out of solid limestone. A tomb we learn from the other gospels prepared for himself, for his own family line. Understand what this tomb meant. This was the heritage that Joseph of Arimathea was going to bequeath to his children's children's children. He was a man of means. He lived somewhere in the Jewish suburbs, but he wanted to have his name and his family line associated with the holy city. He wanted them there when the Jewish ideal of the resurrection happened so they would be close to it. That was what this tomb was. It meant being numbered with Jesus to put him there. It meant breaking with the council that he had been a part of. It meant aligning himself publicly with a condemned man. It meant the grisly work, if you can imagine it, of actually removing a human corpse from a cross and from the nails and taking it down and wrapping it in linen to treat it with the dignity that Jesus had been denied over the last 24 hours. It was a costly devotion from which Joseph could not turn back. And the women, too, had their devotion to the Lord. Their devotion, their gift to him was their constancy. They'd always been there by his side, and now as he was being laid in the grave, they saw the place. They made a mental note. They went home to make preparations. They intended to return and to continue to serve him, even in his death. Unlike the apostles who would remain locked in their rooms for the fear of the Jews in the first of the week, the women would go back. They'd be numbered with him. They'd be seen at his grave. They would bring offerings of ointments and spices to do what they could with what they had. Dear Christian, the question is, if this was their devotion when they thought it was over, what is our response now that we know that it's not? Are we willing to be numbered with Jesus? Are we willing to be counted as His? No matter what it cost us. If this was their love for the Savior before the Holy Spirit had been given, what is our response now that the promised paraclete has been poured out upon God's people? To grow us in love and devotion for our Savior. To shape our lives and a following after Him of taking up our cross. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is coming again. And it's news that demands your response. It demands something more than an external evaluation that Jesus was a righteous person. It demands more than a temporary remorse over some of the things that you've done. It demands even more than some kind of heartfelt respect for the memory of his ministry. This news demands your faith. It demands your devotion. This news demands that you believe that it's true. That you allow that belief to shape your walk with him. It means a willingness to be numbered with him, a willingness to take up your cross after him. It calls you to commit your hope into the hands of God's promises, to know that the Father can be trusted now and forever through the name of Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. That's what this news demands of you, your faith, your devotion, your walking with the Lord. Let's pray together. O gracious Lord, we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit poured out upon your people to enable us to do what we cannot for ourselves. O Lord, we pray that you command what you will and give what you command. Make your people faithful, O Lord. Make us devoted to Christ. Make us bold to be numbered with him, no matter what it may cost us in this life. We pray in Jesus' name.